Greetings, dear fellow humans. You are listening to another episode of Keeping It Real with Janine, and I'm Janine Strong. I have wanted to have my next guest on since the beginning of the pandemic, and I finally found a way to connect with her through my guest, Lonnie Galera. I've had Lonnie on, what, two or three times now. Susan Stanfield is a strong advocate for justice, particularly health justice. She watched her mother die from health policy corruption in Canada and has worked in service since then using photography, story, writing, and advocacy to help others. Susan initiated the first No More Lockdowns lawful protest march on April 12, 2020 at Vancouver City Hall to awaken the world to public health fraud. Susan's justice advocacy is inspired by her professional backgrounds in American television, travel, photography, and let me see if I can pronounce this correctly, témoignage, to bear witness, human rights training with Médecins Sans Frontières in New York, Brussels, and Guinea. Her new book is called Betrayed blowing the whistle on the organized betrayal of natural health in Canada. It's her memoir of starting the No More Lockdowns movement. And I'm so excited to have Susan here. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm wonderful. And thank you for having me. Do you used to do, I, well, we, we were just talking, you said you still do it, these little uh, video updates in your car. And I don't remember how I found you, but I, w- I kept watching your video updates and I thought, oh, she'd be just amazing for my podcast. And it took, what, maybe three years <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about how you you know, you, you became so passionate about health justice. Okay, well, I love it when people mention that part about my mother, I lost my mother, uh, when I was 18, I was told mm. when I was 17, oh, she's gonna die. And back then in 1986, people just accepted it, I guess we just accepted it. We didn't mm. fight it. She never went to yoga, like there was no turmeric drinks or anything. We just accepted she was going to die of cancer. She was a smoker. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish that I had been set on the justice path then, you know, because it was such a deep injustice. And my father talked about that a lot. But um, it was probably just how I was raised. And that incident set me on a very different path from all of my friends, right? I just turned left when that happened to me, like Mm -hmm. anybody would. Mm -hmm. It's a life changing event at that age. And when I was working in television in Vancouver, I was working in American television. We were filming on the streets all the time, like you do in that kind of TV in Vancouver. And I worked in that industry for many years. We ended up in the downtown east side a lot, shooting in poor neighborhoods and whatnot. And I never really liked the way the people were treated. And I was I was always like, well, we're making too much noise. Or what about our garbage? Or the homeless people are told, told to move out of the way and it's their neighborhood. And I I wanted to do something about it. And so I started my first what I call social profit (laughs) project in 2003. And it was really about money. I've been an economic activist for more of the time than I have been a health activist. So that was almost 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, when I pass people, uh, homeless people sitting, you know, out on the street and on the sidewalk. I just, sometimes I really like to just stop when I have time and talk to them like they're human beings, <laughs> you know, yeah, if I can't stop and talk, I always at least smile or, you know, do something to acknowledge 
who they are. I wish I wish something could be done about that. Um, but it's my understanding that as the planet changes, well, I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime, but um, you know that there will be equality amongst humans, and that we won't see homelessness anymore. So. Well, and I'll add something just a little bit, because I actually know quite a bit about that. I've been involved with the issue on and off for many years and in Africa. And there is also, a, a, and the more you talk to people who live in poverty, the more you get the real story, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that they refuse to live undignified lives in poor housing that mm-hmm. is corrupt or like, like we were evicted twice, basically under the pandemic. So we were homeless as well, right? No mm-hmm. judgment, nothing. We were in the exact same position. And like hell, I was going to go and live somewhere in an undignified way and be pushed around and bossed around or paying too much rent or whatever. So there's a great part of that homeless. Um, not movement, but community, that they're out there because it's a far more dignified way of living. You know, not if you're shooting up drugs and you're getting beaten Mm -hmm. up in alleyways. But I've met uh, so many women who live in tents in parks and things. And I'm like, good for them. That's probably what I would do too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not safe for their children to live in some of this housing or they're not allowed to take their children in. So we can talk about that another time. But it's never what you think it is from the outside until you sit down and you actually listen like what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's the winter's you know, that yeah. that where I really have compassion. And I'm an animal rescue person. And I did wildlife rehab for six years. And I crochet and knit and I crocheted a bunch of blankets and gave them to the um, the animal, uh, you know, the SPCA, and asked them to please give them to homeless people that had dogs. So that was my little contribution. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> And that's what it's all about, right? Like everybody just contributing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if everybody contributed a little bit, what a di- I mean, it would be such a different world. I know, I know. So, okay, so when you first started No More Lockdowns, you were living in Vancouver area, right? Yeah, West Side, West Point Gray, right by UBC. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a beautiful area. Um, I haven't been there in a long time. And what prompted you to start this? Well, I had for two years been researching pharmaceutical public health corruption because my family and my children in particular were being threatened by the government. Uh, And I found legislation. I found a very unlawful order in council or what they call OIC that had been put into place as soon as Bonnie Henry had been appointed. And I went digging when I found this thing and it threatened to fine me $250,000 or six months in jail if I didn't give my kids school their vaccine records. (laughs) And yeah, I grew up in the 70s, right? And I was like, what? Like it was so egregious. And I had been out of Canada on and off for 20 years. So I hadn't gotten used to the pharmaceuticalization Mm -hmm. of Canada. Mm -hmm. And so it was was really shocking to me, whereas other parents might be like, oh, yeah, we have to do that. I was like, over my dead body, I'm doing that. Like, not because I don't want them to see what's in the records, but because that is just wrong. That is immoral. So that was in 2018. So when 2000, when the COVID hit in February, March, April of 2020, I knew exactly what they were doing. I knew Mm -hmm. exactly what Bonnie was doing. I knew the pharma racket. 
And I hadn't seen it so blatant on things like the news and the radio, but I had seen it in letters. I had seen it at school, people that refused to speak to me. I was threatened by a superintendent that worked for the government, stuff like that. So I know exactly what they were doing. Wow. I mean, I don't, good for you. I don't know what the dosage is up here, but I know in the States now it's 72 doses of 16 yeah. different vaccines, whatever, um, by the time they're 18. And I just, I, I can't even, I, I have no concept of how anybody can think that's healthy or okay. I, know. I just, and you can add three to that now because the COVID dose is now what mm -hmm. they call a three dose series. So right. add another three. So now it's 75. And I think they're going to, I think they're going to roll in the influenza jabs somewhere in there too. Yeah, they just started marketing that here yesterday in, in England, the new one. You must, it's time for you. They use such uh, such bullying language, right? You need to go get your flu shot now. Mm. And I, so it's very persuasive for a lot of people. They go, oh, I need to, right? And they're not even thinking for themselves anymore. I guess not. And I, you know, I, I keep asking myself, I never even considered getting a flu shot. Luckily, because I'm 72, I've had, I think I had... Um, a polio and maybe smallpox. That was it. You know, so I, I never even thought about vaccines. Now, when I graduated from nursing school, I did work in a peds office and I did give uh, vaccine shots to kids. But I that was what I was taught. I didn't know any different. And as I started to research and learn, I realized that that was totally wrong. But I, I apologize to all those mothers and kids that I actually gave shots to. But you don't know any different. You know, you're just you're just kind of taught that's what you do. And um, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, nobody talks about adverse events. Um, and you look at all the chronic illnesses now. I think it's a combination of the vaccines and uh pesticides, especially glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before on the podcast, when I was a kid, nobody had autism, nobody had food allergies. I mean, you know, all of the chronic illnesses, uh, they just it didn't exist. I know my grandmother, this is in my book, too. I think yeah, it is my grandmother who was born in Scotland and lived through the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s in Canada. She lived until she was 105. Wow. So immigrating over to Canada to give her children a better life. Her child, my mother, died, you know, 50 years younger than she did. Wow. Because she grew up in Canada. It's part of the reason, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the whole reason, but who knew? And I think of these Chinese families that that leave the persecution. Uh, well, not just Chinese, but there's a Chinese um, kid in a billboard ad. And I thought about this. I thought they're leaving. I know a lot of Chinese families to getting out of China, one child policy. They come to Canada to have a better life. And then they end up trafficked into this drug system. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they don't know it. They don't know what's going on around them until they're here and they're settled and they're getting residency and it's too late, right? They've come to a country that we've lost so much of this. Right. Right. And, and it would be one thing if it really was 
a personal choice. If if the drug companies were transparent about possible side effects, I mean, they're still saying that you know autism there's not has nothing to do with the with the vaccines, and that's just it's not true. If it really was a an informed personal choice, that would be one thing. But uh, just like the jabs, where everybody's told, oh, it's safe and effective, ha ha. Yeah. Well, just like um, human trafficking now is the fastest growing crime in the world. Mm, mm-hmm. It's it's outpacing the drug and arms race. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like um, and uh, human and including sex trafficking. So yes. the sale, the sale of humans for use in that way. But the, the medical industry d- is doing exactly the same thing. It's this trafficking and the bodies are the recipient of the products. So they can't make money without the human body. Right. And that's what the goal is. If they would just sell the drugs to the governments and leave us alone, okay, fine, whatever, steal all of our money. But the fact that it goes the next step and there's this threat to put stuff into our bodies is just, it's beyond egregious. It's beyond criminal. And I'm so grateful the world is waking up and the role that people like you and me are playing in this. we got a long way to go still, but (laughs) I'm very grateful for the pandemic because these people and all of us, we weren't doing what we're doing now two years ago. We were still very much asleep. Right. And and the more I learn, the more disgusting it is. I mean, they really are psychopaths. And whoever these, these I call them the global predators, um, you know, people, we didn't really, like I knew, I, I was pretty well educated about a lot of this, but I had no idea how how deep and how wide and, and just, you know, how, how it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everybody, I mean, and how can everybody be so bought off? It just, wow. I, I just, I don't understand how, like I was a registered nurse. I, I'm so glad I got out before all the, you know, long before all this happened, but you know, how, how can my fellow nurses be a part of this? I know. You know I, I know those are very hard questions we'll be asking for many, many years. And the the first part about you said is something that I've studied a lot. How could so many people, the nurses thing is, is a totally different story, but how can so many people have just sort of been sleepwalking into this, these kinds of passive choices and lifestyle? <clears throat> and you look at it in other ways. How can so many people be eating junk food? How can so many people be watching so much television and I think the truth is most people, and I don't say this to be critical of anybody, but most people are just living very simple lives where they don't analyze much. Mm-hmm. I and agree. they're just going along and that's okay, I guess. That's what they're doing. And people like you and I, we're a smaller minority where there's probably only maybe 10 to 15% of the world that is searching and has purpose and is trying to live an actualized life. Most people just aren't actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe, I think I started uh, eating organic in the 70s. Yeah, nice. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the 70s, that's when I really started, uh, I had two spiritual mentors and, and uh, started doing, um, uh, oh, dear, I'm having a moment, uh, you know, TM, a transcendental meditation. Yes. Oh, nice. And, and I've been on the, the path of that spiritual growth and, and energetic healing um, ever since. Wonderful, wonderful. And it, people can't believe how I don't look 72. And I say, well, I have been taking care of myself really ever since the 70s. 
Yeah. You know? So what are the young people? So I maybe I'm a little bit younger than you and different sort of experiences from where I grew up and stuff. But what are the young people who are in their 20s and 30s doing <clears throat> in terms of being led into awakened spiritual choices, even if it's just food? Like, do you think that they have the same same information in front of them the way you did and you were led to that or do they have more information given to them or do you think they have less like i really worry about them i see them walking into whole foods and stuff but i wonder whether they're really grasping it in the way that the earlier generations did you know that's an interesting question and my sense is that like my experience is um with with young adults that, especially where I live, they're not as awake as I thought they would be here, but they're pretty awake. And, you know, everyone has gardens and, and animals and, and is most, most people tend to eat a, a pretty healthy diet. And we have healthy water and, you know, and clean air and all of that. And we don't have cell phone service in this little area that I, I live in. But like the, so the kids especially if they went to the whole, the alternative schools and stuff they were taught about nutrition and all but what i'm seeing is that a lot of them are so disgusted with the way the planet is right now and how how it's been ruined and they don't know what to do and they don't really care about being healthy you know it's like because they're depressed they're anxious I mean, I, I'm I'm seeing it with so many, uh, you know, young people in their twenties, and it's it's really sad. I'm I'm hoping that as things are able to change, that they can pull out of it, and they will be the ones to really move us forward. But um, you know, they're they're just not willing to go along with the way things have been. Yeah, and that's my husband was telling me uh, just yesterday about uh, a young man who. Uh, his dad, he was talking to his dad and he said he didn't have his driver's license yet because he was waiting for self-driving cars. <laughs> oh my God. That's a whole other nightmare. Well, just, I'll just say one final thing on that. I think it's important is that if, if the younger generations or anybody, but we're talking about the younger ones, if they don't look to the future with a great sense of idealism and hope the way I did, until COVID, to be honest with you, like COVID really was a blunt force to mm -hmm. my head. Mm -hmm. And I was always that, per I still am this person, but I'm, now I'm way more skeptical. If they don't look towards their future and think it's going to be fantastic, we can totally change this, then no matter how much organic food they think they want to eat, if they don't truly believe that something wonderful and miraculous and healthy is possible, then will they keep pushing you know what I mean? Yep. Like, and yep. then you, you could answer that question too. I could answer that question too. I'm going to do it because I got two little kids, but COVID changed me. Like it took away something from me, very, very raw and naive and sparkly and beautiful. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get it back. And I'm really sad about that. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, you know, the lockdowns, the mass, the, the whole, this whole control and restrictions, it's just, it really, um, kills your spirit and you know for me i'm like okay so now what's going to happen in the fall again you know are they going to start this whole bullshit all over with some new you know whatever the the new uh, virus of the day is or climate change or whatever they want to pull 
um, to just try to get well, try to get everybody in line. Yeah, I don't. I actually don't think that that's going to happen because I think that we've won. There's still a bunch of shrapnel flying around, but the to me, my theory in all of this, and you will see that in my book, that, that this was all about a broken financial system. And it really is collapsing now. And I think the U.S. dollar is going to collapse and disappear. And mm-hmm. if that is true, so that's what a lot of it would have been about, was forcing everybody, and Trudeau was in on it, forcing all of us into this new currency system because they stole all the money over the past 20 or 30 years. So their old system is collapsing and they cannot fix it. And the new mm-hmm. the new world is is happening. And I'll tell you more about that from my research so I don't think we'll see the lockdowns from that perspective anymore. We're going to see a bunch of stuff coming out of Bonnie Henry's office because she's running a drug trial still. Oh, God. And she's trying to force children. They need drug trial statistics for licensure. They're not going to get their licensing unless they force every age group, every color of skin, every gender through these drug trials for another year. So she's sitting there until they put her in prison and she's going to keep doing this. And whatever that that may not be masks, that may not be lockdowns. It, it may just be a bunch of bribes, uh, you know, and threats and social media to get as many people under the needle as possible. Wow, I can't even stand to hear her name. Oh, <clears throat> it's good I don't watch TV because I just like even on Telegram, little clips and stuff of her when her voice comes, I just like I just cringe. Well, did you hear about the, the, the ruling, the Supreme Court ruling the other day about her? Mm-hmm. If you didn't, I can tell you, it'll make you yes. feel a lot of joy. Please. Okay, so <laughs> she's got at least four lawsuits against her big ones. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be more. Like, she's done, right? But they take time going through the courts. And so it, it was Justice, I think it was Carrer, Carrer Koppel. There's two guys that have the similar name. He has just ruled through Kip Warner's litigation last week, I believe, that yes, that anybody can sue Bonnie now. Wow. And wow. it not that people couldn't have before, but he's ruled basically that she is now culpable and liable for her actions and that they were wrong. And anybody, it's game on against Bonnie Henry. So that may, I can send you the link later mm-hmm. on if you want to have a look at that. But we've been waiting for two years for this. That's awesome because that sets a precedence. Yeah. And and I yeah. know that um, uh, Del Bigtree's group and, and Bobby Kennedy and Tom Rents, you know, there are a lot, right. there are a lot of lawsuits going on in the United States too. So yeah, I, I hope sooner than later that these people see justice, that we see justice well, against them. The, and the irony is, and I say this laughing and it's not, it's just tragic. I shouldn't be laughing, but we've been through so much, right? It's like to catch a thief, you, you know, you're, it's a stakeout. You actually have to let them commit the crime. Mm-hmm. before you have the evidence and I come from a background of justice and lawyers and judges and all this all my whole life I was around it and I got a lot of interesting comments and feedback and advice given to me from impartial judiciary types and that's what they all said was it's going to have to run its course and the court waits for that they they have to watch and wait for this they may know what's going on from day one but they have to be impartial and they have to watch the injustice before justice comes, because justice always comes after. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I see some of these people like, um, oh, what's her first name? Gold. Um, Simone? Simone Gold, yeah, being put in prison. And then you have Epstein and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. And where are, all the, where are all the people who were committing these crimes? 
You know, we yeah. don't, it's like, uh, how come we haven't heard about who all these people are? Because they're well known and they're politicians and they're celebrities. And, and the court, yeah, the court has the power to hide so much. Like, like what the Pfizer um, litig- team, the Pfizer lawyers tried to do was to hide the trials. And then Dell's team with mm-hmm. other people, I think they managed to crack that and they forced all of the data to be made public. But they tried for months to keep it hidden using the court system and they might have been successful and it was going to be buried for 75 years. Yeah, I know. That is so outrageous. I know that Naomi Wolf, I love her. She's awesome. And yeah. the War Room, they have like, at least, I think it's at least 3,000 researchers that every yes, time, yeah, every time a, a, a new slew of, of documents are, are released, they go through them. And it's just, it's disgusting. I know. I know. It's, okay. it's overwhelming, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And we have access to that same stuff here, but we don't have the same fire and we don't have the same kind of litigious um, financial incentives in the in the legal system the way they do in the states Mm -hmm. and it is Mm -hmm. it's helping them you Mm -hmm. know they have that power that we don't and also 10 times as many people and 10 times as many experts and whatnot wow yeah now would you like to talk about the relationship with the Canada and uh, the UK and the justice system oh sure yeah should I just say some thoughts or you want to ask no go ahead yeah go ahead well um you know, our system is British, inherited from British law. So it's interesting that I chose to come here and anybody wants to come here because the systems are so similar and there's so much I've learned about what's going on here and what I'm actually able to send back to Canada and vice versa and how we can help each other. There's a lot of connection and tons of people in Britain have family members in Canada and mm-hmm. vice versa. Like almost everybody I talk to has says, oh yeah, my cousin's there or something. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so in terms of collaborating, you know, it's an amazing opportunity. And like I said before, before you started recording, the Brits hate the government. It's great. And they don't trust them one bit. And they've had, you know, centuries of fighting and they've had the kings and the conquerors and the Romans and everything. It's, It's in their blood. And then you look at Scotland and the Welsh. They're all pissed off at the ruling class and the establishment and the government. So it's a wonderful culture to be living in. And the people more so, I believe, than Canadians, they take care of each other here. Hmm. I've been mm-hmm. given a lot of free stuff since I've been here. Like, hmm. oh, just have the have the last cup of coffee from the pot. And they work for the big coffee company. You know, they're on the <laughs> side of the person. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed nice. to, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. And that's what a Canadian person would say in the coffee shop. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And so the Brits, yeah, especially the ones who are over the age of 50, they're on each other's side and they remember the war and they grew up with these sacrifices. And, and we don't have that in Canada. And my husband, when he moved to Canada and he couldn't wait to get out, he said, he goes, it's such an entitled society. He, and I never got that in the beginning hmm. when we first moved there because I, I'm open to all the wonderful things of Canada. And now that I'm here again, I can clearly see it. You know, we've grown up a very, very entitled culture. And that's all Canadians know. It's nobody's fault. It's Mm -hmm. not a criticism. But what kind of sacrifices have we had to live with, you know, growing up in Canada over the last hundred years, apart from our Indigenous people? And that is beyond a sacrifice. That's a whole other radio program. But Mm -hmm. it's been a pretty easy life if you were growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. What what didn't we have? We had everything without much sacrifice. Right. Right. And and I've noticed that the whole public welfare thing here it's like really easy to be yeah. on uh-huh. I mean 
like uh, I know someone who left their job and is getting, um, uh, let's see, what's it called here? You know, they're getting unemployment insurance, whatever it's called here. Employment insurance, EI. Oh, EI, right. And I said, don't you have to show some proof that you're looking for a job? Or do you just get to just write it out, you know? And it's like, no, we don't have to do that. I'm like, you're kidding. So I it I just it really floors me. I mean, yeah, it's becoming the the net what we call over here the nanny state, mm-hmm. Canada, the welfare state, the nanny state, and Australia is the same. This it was this in my opinion, it was this really good thing that started out as what they called like the social net, the mm-hmm. safety net, right? That that's a good thing, right? To want to care for people and to provide that. And where I live, there's very little homelessness. There's a lot of housing for poor people and stuff like that and it's wonderful to see that the suffering is much less because of the social system but then it just goes too far and suddenly it builds this culture of well we can just get the government will do everything for us and then you end up with the welfare state and the nanny state and i see that happening in canada more more certain provinces more than others i suppose right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely in bc it's i think it's very much a nanny state wow so okay so um what was one of the, oh I know let's let's have a little talk about the Brexit and all uh, all around that because that really surprised me when you we we talked a little bit about that before the recording and I thought that would be a good thing to talk about. Well, I was always asking, and many people were in. Um, once things settled into the movement and we were marching and we were realizing that because at the beginning I thought, Oh, it will all be over in a couple of weeks. Like a lot of us, right. I knew it was fraud, but I didn't know how big it was. And um, I just thought it was pharmaceutical fraud. And then after, you know, month two or three, I was like, Holy crap, this is huge. This is, this is structural adjustment. This is the world bank. This is treason. Like I started finding all the big, big evidence. And so I started asking like other people possibly did. Okay. So why March, 2020, if this was, if the, this button was going to be pushed at any moment and a lot of people had a lot of evidence they showed me why March and April of 2020, why not six months earlier? Why not a year earlier? Why not a year later? Like you, Mm -hmm. Almost every time something like that happens, it's preceded by something that happened before it. Something okay. before it triggered it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what? Tr- something must have triggered COVID. So I went looking, and one month before is when Brexit, Brexit went into, um, into power, in uh, January or February 20th or something like that, uh-huh. 2020. Oh, Brexit was signed, and it finally was released. Britain was released, and then boom the pandemic. And so I thought, okay, that's a good possibility. Maybe it was Brexit. And the more research I did on that, especially coming over here, and I can get military intel and stuff over here, mm-hmm. I absolutely believe the whole thing was triggered because of Brexit and that the European banksters who are behind all of this, I don't think they really took it seriously that Brexit would actually happen 100%. Okay. Hmm. And then it did. Mm-hmm. And that, and the, the military uh, intelligence that I came across um, said that, that they rushed Britain out of the European Union because they realized that the, the EU was going to try and hold them into very expensive long-term contracts. And those contracts, you can see them. I mean, I could send people the links, but they're around to do with um, research in space and exploration and military, billions and billions of dollars that the EU is going to try and keep Britain on the hook for, wow. even though they were leaving. Yeah, buried. 
you know, multi, multi-layer contracts at the average. And the problem with the politicians is the politicians come and go. And so they've got their eye on the game while they're in office and then they leave office and they don't have their eye on the game. So this, this bureaucratic contract theft just keeps going and there's no one person that's accountable because there's no CEO of Britain that started the company that is paying the bills. It's this public custodianship of the governments, right? And so that's why a lot of this financial corruption perpetuates over decades. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it was Brexit and I think the banksters were behind it and they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to screw the big English cu- countries that Britain is, is connected to because Britain's going to go back and focus on those countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Mm-hmm. They're pushing away from European markets and they're going to go back to the Commonwealth markets. And I think that's why we were all targeted because you look at the worst hit countries and we are all the big Christian, English, Anglo-speaking Commonwealth countries. Hmm. And you really could put the United States in there since uh, it's my understanding yep. that the States yep. is still... I, it's my understanding the states is still in one way or another paying taxes to the crown uh, yeah. for for contracts that went back to the discovery of North America. Yeah. So interesting. Hmm. And they call that the Anglosphere. So I studied international politics and governance systems and Bretton Woods and all that stuff I studied. And so they refer to it as the Anglosphere and the economies of the Anglosphere. And there is very much kind of a, what's not a rift, but a, there's a tension, you know, between Anglo culture and economies and Euro and, and say French or Belgian based ones. Oh, interesting. They, they do have tension and aggression towards each other. And I think that's why we ended up so um, hooped was because Trudeau, he's French, mm-hmm. and so he hangs out with the French and the Europeans more so than he does the Brits. He's one of them. Whereas if Harper had been our prime minister or somebody else, it might not have been the same way. But, you know, he he spends a lot of time with Root from Holland. Right. And mm-hmm. he speaks French. They all speak French. All the all the international diplomacy is all done in French because mm-hmm. I worked in that system with Médecins Sans Frontières. The e, you know, the U.N., all the big meetings, most of that business is conducted in the French language interesting yeah which is weird right because most of the world is not french it's english right right and do you think that has anything to do with a connection with the world economic forum well i think the world economic forum is sort of often its own it's a little satellite cult i think it's a cult i Mm -hmm. think it's a terrorist cult in a way i agree Mm -hmm. No, it's more because of this this whole banking system was really uh, is driven out of these European capitals. You know, the Bank of Settlements is in where is that Basel, that's Switzerland, so that's mm-hmm. French. Mm-hmm. Brussels, um these, you know, the German major cities. So I think that the WF is is a spin-off cult of that, but because it has never had it doesn't have any governance jurisdiction. You know, it does it's not attached to any form of government governance over nations the way um, central banks are they are connected to the governance systems in countries that they're just they can do whatever they want they are just literally a financial cult Hmm. and he who controls the money controls the world yeah along with the food so you you'd mentioned the economies of the anglosphere what's your hypothesis or knowledge 
of why they're trying to ruin the economy, why they're trying to pay farmers not to to grow. Um, I don't know how what number we're up to now of of food processing plants and storage facilities that have just gone up in flames. It's over a hundred in the last couple of years, and I think with geoengineering, they're excuse me fucking around with the weather and. Um, it's too dry in some places, too wet in other places. You know, we're not going to have the food that we need. They're destroying farm animals. Um, you know, why? Well, again, for me, my theory, and um, let's say I'm right about some things, but I don't know if I'm right about everything, but I stick <laughs> to my theory. I, I stick to my hypothesis, right, to keep going down the same track of proving the theory. And I get to prove a lot of it right. And the stuff that I'm not right, I don't worry about, but I'm sticking to evidence, whatever. And they're so, the biggest momentum of all of this, you know, is a 70 years, 60, 80 year kind of history after World War II of very powerful people really pushing this agenda that there's too many people on the planet, that the planet could be better managed if there were less people, mm-hmm. and that it's going to be up the 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 audacity of the rich western countries it's going to be up to them to control things and all these other cultures and countries have to play a secondary role and that's why they ended up calling them the developing world Mm. they never wanted them to develop they did everything they could for 50 years to keep places like africa and south america and india poor that was the financial model. Okay, we need a whole bunch of poor people. There's no, there's no coincidence that the poor people historically are not white. Interesting. It's, mm-hmm. it's struck. It's been structured that way since the Second World War, and so and and I I saw that living in Africa on and off for twenty years, seeing these broken systems that were intentionally kept broken because it kept the rich part of the system rich. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's guided from this old theory of, you know, Kissinger and all the stuff that has grown through the 60s and 70s and 80s. Well, we know better. The world has to be smaller. And so we're going to structurally downgrade and break these economies. And so many people are going to have to lose their lives, but it's going to be better for the planet in the long run. I don't know if they sit around and talk about genocide, but I think they are definitely there's a culling going on mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they know it. And, and the drugs, the injections are a part of that. Right. I do feel that, that whoever is left, then they do want to uh, chip or, you know, in some way control completely. Yeah. But you know what? The, I was thinking again that, oh, my God, it's so, just so ironic to be laughing at this. Someone put a meme up the other day about people like you and I being the ultimate warriors, mm. the superheroes, the thoroughbreds, right? Like, because we just have survived all this. And I just think, did they ever think stop to think that they would end up with a whole bunch of people who survived who are actually us mm-hmm. <laughs> right. their enemy the people that will never ever do what they say and all the people that that did listen to them that believe them and stuff are the are the warriors they lost you think they would have done it the other way right you think they would have kept the sheep and got rid of the wolves and got rid of us but now they're screwed because they got us that's that's a good point yeah i i never really uh, thought of myself as a warrior until all of this started and um i just i'm like i 
I don't know. I don't know what makes us different, really, you know, but I'm not going to get a jab. I will die first. I've, I've had a great life. I don't care. I can, I can leave the planet. Fine with me. Uh, but I'm here, so I'm going to do my work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to wear a mask. And I think I, I think I've said I've only wore one maybe for a couple of hours total as it was. Um, I did use a clear face shield if I had to, but I just wasn't going to do that to myself, you know, and, and how come I know that that's bad for my health? It's bad for my uh, emotional and psychological well-being. And why are others, I still see people wearing masks. I know, I know. Well, I think that what the defining thing that has found connected all of us together is people like you and I and all the warriors, we must have at some point in our lives and maybe our early lives come across the story of what morality and being moral is, you know, mm -hmm. like virtues, like justice and decency and morals and speaking up and ethics. And I remember that I was raised to appreciate those values and be that person. And so that's why I am the way I am. And other people, they probably, we almost have just come across that story and it affected us more than the other people because the other people are good, decent people. They're not bad right. people at all. I but know. They, feel, they don't feel compelled to do things that are immoral. I have one friend that knows exactly what's going on. She's like, I just don't want the bad energy in my life. I just want to be happy and have my smoothies and ride my bike. There's nothing wrong with her. She's a fully decent person, but mm -hmm. she doesn't care about the moral thing at all. And who knows if she's going to how long she's going to live if she keeps getting all of the boosters and or if she'll be disabled or you know it's just it's such a crapshoot really yeah. plain russian roulette yeah i know that's one question we were talking about the other day with um who was it whether it's an interview or just a friend one of the warriors has come over here and she's touring around england her name is Svetlana Delalana if you ever um <laughs> come across her she's amazing she's one of the nurses that was fired and then the ah. courts the courts took away her children she's got a brutal brutal story <sighs> and we were talking about that i said is there anything you wish that you had done differently and i wished i had been able to reach my loved ones differently so they could hear it from me mm -hmm. and go it's me like don't do this right because they would they would they love me mm -hmm. but i i didn't really have that opportunity because i was attacked so viciously by by the media and by forces that were paid to do that and a few of my friends and family members attacked me socially and, I, and then I was done no I don't think anybody was going to listen to me but I, I wish that that part had been different I, I probably could have helped more people that I really care about mm. how did you handle that Susan the being attacked so viciously how... I cried a lot mm. I cried a lot in the beginning and then you get used to it. Like the first couple of times, it's like having somebody knife you in the stomach and I would just fall over. I would just lie down and cry. And but like, what, it's the most awful, like doxing or whatever they want to call it. But then after it happened to me five, six, seven times, then I built skills and I built muscles around it. I would still cry. I would still fall down and cry and feel miserable. But I immediately, even from the very first time, I immediately went, to compassion and I, I knew that the person who had done it to me was not an evil bad person they just didn't understand what I understood and I just chose 
I'd had, I'd already had experience because of working in a high stress TV job to let things lie for a day or two. If it doesn't feel good, you know, you probably have that, just not deal with it. Mm -hmm. But, um, I lost a lot of people that I really cared about and it's not that I don't care about many more, but the man, did I ever learn a powerful lesson about self-respect that I didn't have before. I didn't understand how to truly exhibit self-respect until I was attacked like that. Yeah, I just, you know, losing so many family members and friends in, in a, a way that, because it, what what really gets me is that people who are really, really bought into the whole COVID thing and, and getting jabs and, you know, the, the Ukraine and, you know, just, just all of the, the, the lies uh, that are being told, most of them won't even entertain another point of view. And I just find that really sad. Like I'm all I'm open to other points of view than than mine. I'm open to listening and hearing and so that because I I want other points of view, I want to, to be challenged as to whether what I, you know, what I feel and think is is correct. Um, But they just they won't listen to anything. I just, I don't know. Yeah, one of one of the reasons why I think is that a lot of Canadians never live outside Canada. And they don't even do extensive traveling to to foreign cultures, right? They're not really exposed. They don't go over to Afghanistan. They don't go and live in India and places like that. They might pop over to Hawaii or do a trip to Europe or something, but most Canadians believe they understand the complexity of the cultures of the world because all of the cultures come to our country and we meet those people right mm-hmm. but most Canadians don't ever go into some of these far remote cultures where people can behave completely differently and are in some ways so much more accepting than we are as Canadians which is hard for a Canadian to hear it's hard for a Canadian to believe that Canadians aren't as accepting but I sat and listened to so many different cultures for so many years in Africa and other places I went to and and listening to people be compassionate and humble, Mm -hmm. you know, the humility and the humbleness that you find in these other cultures that Mm. that's something that Canada needs to start paying attention to and become that ourselves. We're privileged and we're rich and we're powerful. And those are good things too, but we tend to miss out on the nuance and the subtlety of what, the people who are raised in other cultures understand Mm -hmm. the deep meaning you find in those cultures. And as an American, I would say that it's the same for Americans. Yeah. A lot of what you're saying about Canada and the Canadians does relate to the U S too. Yeah. So North Americans, let's say. Yeah. And so our country are, I mean, look at the land mass. There's 400 million of us. we got this huge chunk of land all the way down to Mexico and so what, what is needed, you don't, it was just really by accident that I started traveling in developing countries and being humbled. And my first one was Fiji. Mm-hmm. And I lived with a poor family in Fiji for a couple of weeks. And I was like, wow, I had never seen that in that way and how happy they were and how simple their life was. I'd seen pictures of it or whatever, but I really understood. They taught me about their food. They taught me about their connection to nature and things like that. And I was hooked and I've lived like that ever since. But I think a lot of Canadians would go there and be respectful, but they wouldn't necessarily truly deeply be moved Mm -hmm. by something that's different than our own culture. Right. Uh, Susan, let's talk about the importance of Canada 
in this whole thing, the resources. Yeah. And, and because I think you, you made some very good points when we were talking earlier that I hadn't considered. Well, I'm, you would relate to this. I'm one of those people that believes that Canada started being captured in the late 80s um, by the American model. And I don't want to say the mm. Americans because I love Americans, but the American military industrial complex mm -hmm. model. And I started seeing evidence of that in the late 80s and 90s. And I was worried about it. It was also what led to me being unhappy and why I left Canada the first time because I, I left Canada. I emigrated out in 2004, 2005 because okay. of these reasons, same kind of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I believe that we've been a captured nation for decades. And because of our resources, because of our land base, because of the North, NATO, Russia, all of that, Canada is extremely strategic. Um, and they're never going to let Canada go. I mean, I don't know why they they would bother to hold on to New Zealand. I mean, yeah, geographically, I how useless is that, right? It's a tiny little couple of islands down south. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a strategic land right. base. So yep. I studied how Iraq was captured with 100 orders. I don't know if you remember that, John Bremer and mm -hmm. the 100 orders that captured Iraq. No. Yeah, it's you should look into it or do some shows on it. So they literally John Bremer was a US foreign policy, mm -hmm. you know, advisor and he drafted this thing called the 100 orders and they just created orders in council and went over and took over Iraq. And they control it to this day. They still do the multinationals, Cargill, all of that. And Order 81 caught my mind because I was studying food systems and Order 81. So it's a list of 100 rules basically of how Iraq was going to be governed. Um, they had to privatize things. They had regime change. It's how American, the American-British system takes over countries. And it's happening to Ukraine right now, right? Mm -hmm. That's what that's what's going on there. And I believe that it has happened to Canada, but they did it without weapons. They just did it in a different way. And they really did it over the past two years. And they used orders in council, exactly the same thing. And that we are a captured nation. You know, the Saudis run the wheat board and the trains with Buffett, that all that whole agricultural system is captured now and Cargill's involved and it's all moving down south and it's all GMOs. The Canadians don't know that. They're not told that. So Canada plays a huge role in terms of what they will fight the hardest for. Um, and But it also has the potential to help, you know, two, three billion people if we can win, if the Canadian movement can make progress and knock some of this down, if we were able to put some of these government employees in prison and things like that, mm -hmm. the amount of attention and power that that would give to the rest of the world. But it still remains to be seen. I mean, Justin Trudeau is still walking around a free man as the prime minister, despite what he's done. Unbelievable. I thought with the truckers, I mean, I'm so proud of the Canadians with the truckers, the with the movement. And I thought, well, that didn't really do anything. But then if you look at all that they inspired around the world, uh, yeah. they really did. Yeah. It just seemed like here it kind of fizzled out and didn't do much. But they certainly inspired uh, farmers and truckers in many, many countries to stand up. And that that's always how social justice movements go and how they're built. And I always try and say this to people, don't be disappointed because the thing that you thought was going to be the big thing didn't turn out to be the big thing. It's the seed that was planted and other things mm. grew from that. Mm -hmm. So we did the first convoy that I remember, and maybe there were others, in April of 2021, a full one year before the main one. 
Mm-hmm. And we called it the Freedom Convoy. And it was small, but it was a seed that was planted for the next one. That's where the ideas came for the next one, right? So it all, it's like a snowball. And it all grows and piles up together. So that, that the Freedom Convoy and the Canadian truckers, that has influenced what's going on in Europe right now. And it's huge what Europe is doing to fight back. And they might not have had the courage to do that if they hadn't seen the Canadians doing it. Right. Right. And and I don't think most people even know how big it is over there in Europe. Yeah. That, because I don't think the mainstream media is really um, showing that at all. Well, they forced the resignation of three um, nas- you know, heads of state. That's pretty big, right? Estonia, Italy, and Britain. And there may be a few more that I haven't seen, but those are three in the last six weeks. Mm-hmm. My concern is that they'll just get another set of what, what I call weffers, <laughs> World Economic Forum puppets in. That Yeah, for sure. For sure. But now we've got that the, the populace isn't going to sit back down and watch television again. I think now we've got the much harder work. And this is where a whole different character of advocate needs to come into play, which is people... And I hope to be a part of this, but I don't need to be, but I would love to be, is how we're going to restructure our governance systems. And that's a longer term thing. Brian Peckford is leading a part of that to do Mm -hmm. a formal national inquiry. I don't know if you know this, but Switzerland, they only allow their president or their prime minister to sit for one year. Hmm. They only get one year. And so they can get rid of a bad guy or a bad gal quickly. And the country works. And they're not seen as some big messiah leader of a political party. They literally just put them in, okay, you're doing the job this year. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see Canada move towards that model. But we have to get rid of crown rule. Well, I felt that way about the states for for many, many years, that there should be term limit. You get in and you can just stay in forever and get gobs of money for whatever underhanded things you're doing and and are you not accountable to the people yeah yeah and maybe that maybe god how long was that going to take i i would think it's probably going to take 20 years Mm -hmm. in canada and that's fine like that's not let's not be negative just because it's going to take a long time at least the ball is rolling you know it took them 40 years to get rid of apartheid oh that's true 40 (laughs) <laughs> that I know that that boggles my mind. You really think about it. Forty years, it's crazy. There are indigenous people, a hundred and fifty years, and they're still suffering. Mm-hmm. So, in the scheme of things, you know, and that's why a lot of people may feel have disappointed and they've left the movement and oh, this isn't happening. Whatever. Oh my God, we are just at the beginning. I mean, considering the changes we have to make, right? And the biggest. This is why all of our focus should be on young people. The biggest shift and the easiest shift in some ways is to re-educate young people because as they grow up through the system and they become twenty somethings and thirty somethings, like what we were talking about with health food before then they're just going to be demanding a better Canada. And no matter what WF puppet gets put in there, they're going to be staring, you know, at millions of young Canadians that say no way. Whereas the other generations, maybe not the the, the grandparents are pissed off and the the Gen X's are pissed off. I'm a Gen X, Mm -hmm. but there's still, you know, probably 10, 15 million Canadians that aren't particularly bothered by what's going on. And that's the problem. They're our biggest problem. That's true. So what do you think people can do? You know, what what can we do to move this forward as quickly as possible? Because I get the sense that it is going to be 
painful, but when we get out on the other side, it's, you know, there's, and there's going to be a lot of rebuilding to do. How, how do you see some of this happening? How do you see the everyday person contributing? Okay. Well, what I think are two of the most important things and done in concert would be a great idea. And I'm hopefully about to do this with one of the big new groups, Stand United, and they're leaders that I've known for two years. And that is this, that if anybody can raise money, because we have always been lacking in capital, and this stuff takes money, you got to pay people, you got to buy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Raise money, raise $100, raise $1,000, raise 10000 whatever, get that money into the hands of the people who are doing the second most important thing, or the first, but these two go together. And that is understanding, thoroughly and completely understanding every jurisdictional level of governance. So how do city halls and municipal governments work? How do the provincial ledges work? And how does Ottawa work? So I'm talking about in Canada. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everyone needs to fully understand how those, how these governments actually work. And then, then we get the, the blessing and the power and the intelligence of the populace going, oh my God, I had no idea City Hall worked like that. That's a bunch of garbage. Let's get rid of that. Then people will get engaged. And people like Jane Goodall are really successful long-term environmental activists say these sorts of things when we when people actually understand, then they can they can get motivated. So until we understand the flaws in our governance systems, we can't do much because they're the things that have harmed us. The individual the bad individuals will always be there. But if we have a better, more resilient, more transparent governance system, then the the bad guys aren't going to be able to get in there. And so here's an example. I don't know if you've ever come across, well, you must know the Chilcotin uh, territory and the Chilcotin people just north of you up in the Chilcotin. I, I've heard of them, but I don't I don't really know much. I have to. Okay, admit. So they are one when the when the white settlers came over and the early 19th centuries, whatever, and they started coming onto their land. It was a party called the Wadsworth Party or whatever. They were British explorationists. They killed them all. <laughs> they just said, no way, you're not taking our land. And they killed them all. And that was the end of that for a while. And so they have this history of being the most sovereign and the most fierce to defend their land. And they are still a completely independent, sovereign I don't want to say nation. They may not use the word nation, but the Chilcotin people govern their land. Nobody goes on Chilcotin land except them. And it's one of the only ones in Canada like this. So they figured it out. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have the same tools. We can take back parts of our land or cities or by doing assemblies and proving through legal systems that we will govern better. And we actually can the problem with those two things, raising money and understanding governance systems and, and rebuilding the best ones, taking the best ideas from the best governance systems in the world, it's it's less glamorous and exciting. And it is the rote, it's the background rote work that you do at day after day after day to rebuild things. And it takes a certain personality to want to do that work. And the people who start movements, not necessarily me, I'm not usually the kind of person that starts a movement, but people that I started the movement with and other people in the past few years tend to be the, the people who yell and build and, and, and um, call out injustice. The ones who have short attention spans and they're fiery in personality. <laughs> they're not the ones who sit down and raise money and change governance uh, models. So we have to go and find a, a whole new armies 
all across Canada of people who have these new skills to do those two things. Mm-hmm. And they're probably younger. Susan, is there a, is there a book or something that, that really um, succinctly and simply explains governance, how, how all of these things work so yeah. that people can understand? That's a really good, well, if people, and we, if you want to ask me about my book later, my book's actually a, a good place to start. Not that okay. it explains, it doesn't necessarily explain the governance systems, but it's, I, I wrote it in a way to make people feel like the issue itself is not as complicated as we think it is. Cause a lot of people will think, Oh God, it's so complicated. The right. other thing that people don't need to think about doing is actually becoming a politician. That's the last thing you need to do mm, to mm-hmm. study the governance systems. It's really simple. You just you walk into city hall, or you go to your member of the legislative assembly provincially, and you start requesting the information on how the legislatures and the rules and the laws work. And one, if you're the kind of person that becomes interested in this early information, you'll find everything you need. So I would say whoever lives wherever, whatever you're closest to. So if you, if you live in Vancouver, then study Vancouver City Hall and municipal governance because it's right there and you can walk in five days a week. You can walk in and get information. Either pick a jurisdiction um, and, and look at the experts in that area who have written books, say, um, talk to old people like, um, what's his name, Bill Vanderzam, Kretchen, anybody who has held office for okay. at least 10 years or mm-hmm. has either written a book or lives in your community, just start. It's the curiosity that will lead the people. And then the books themselves, as you say, I mean, there must be millions of them out there, but I would say there's probably 10 or 20 top Canadian books that can, that could explain that. And they're, and they're simple books that are called like the Canadian legal system, the Canadian political system. Uh, volunteering is a great way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just, say that you just want to volunteer in a political party for six months. Well, that's a, that's an eye opener. I volunteered for the green party of Canada and they fired me because <laughs> I was exposing pharmaceutical corruption. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Mays, a personal assistant fired me. That was a, that was, that was before COVID. That was a really big wake up call to how corrupt the whole system is. Wow. Yeah. I so, think that's the problem is that the whole system is corrupt. I don't know. It almost feels like it needs to be just wiped clean and start over but i don't know if that's possible yeah and even the good people they're not i wouldn't say that they are corrupt but i think elizabeth may is a good person but she she herself got so you get so used to the institutional imperative it, it just has to keep going on you don't rock the boat this is just the way things go so we need the disruptors mm-hmm. we need the people who are going to come and kick the doors down and burn things down say no no more <laughs> yeah wow Okay, so what would you like to uh, share about your book, Betrayed? It's it's quite good. I've been enjoying it. Of course, I oh, haven't had it very long, so I, I haven't read the whole thing, but I'm enjoying it. Well, I would just say it's really easy to read. I wrote mm-hmm. it uh, that way. It's 53 short chapters, and a lot of people don't read long books anymore. So you could read a chapter in seven or eight minutes and put it down and go to something else for a few days, right? It has a lot of... Um, inspiration and hacks and tools that you could literally make notes from and things you could just go and do. It's got a lot of suggestions in it. It's meant to be kind of like a reference book. And then I guess it's mostly meant to be kind of a a comfort and a healing tool for so many Canadians who haven't had someone to talk to 
they've been isolated, they've they're they've been shunned or whatever. I wanted my face and my voice to be in people's homes to make them think, okay, I'm not alone in this journey. And I was just like, and still am, just like every other Canadian that was watching TV and just went, what? What is this? I, I think I need to learn more. I think I'm going to question it. And I did something about it. And everybody could actually get out of their house and just do one little thing. And before you know it, you could have tremendous impact if you stick with it. And so if you read my story from start to finish, which is a great way to do it because it's a two-year timeline, you'll see the journey that someone like me has been on from that very first moment of, oh, I'm out there with my cardboard sign to <laughs> understanding, you know, the biological weapons convention and why we need to see what's going on with these things around the world. So it's worth it's worth it to to imagine that you could do, if you read a book like mine, you think, oh, that happened to her. It's worth it to imagine that the same journey could happen to every Canadian in their own way mm -hmm. that's unique and special and authentic in their community. Awesome. And how can people get your book? Here? Well, the best way is on the website. There are some copies in Vancouver, but to be honest, most of my customers live in rural areas in Canada. Mm -hmm. I don't sell many books to big cities. It's funny. So the website's the easiest. I ship them all myself. The best deal is three for a hundred bucks. It's knocks $7 off the price of each book. So if you found two friends, uh, that's how I sell most of the books is boxes of three. So it's health justice tees, which is T E E S.com. And if you have any questions or if people want discounts, uh, some people need that right now. I'm always happy to just do a deal or help anybody. I've got some free copies as well. So that's the best place. It's, it's on my Facebook page, uh, which is Susan Stanfield. It's on my Instagram, which is at health and justice, but everything is on my website, healthjusticetees.com. Okay. Healthjusticetees.com. And there will be a link on the podcast webpage too for people. Um, wow. This has really been a, a how do I want to say it? Enlivening a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much hope too. I, maybe if I'm going to just say one more thing that, please, you know, I'm really grateful for what happened. I feel at pain and really sad for people who have been harmed. And I'm in that category mm -hmm. too, or people who have lost their lives, right? There's nothing like that, but we have the chance to rebuild now. And that's, now is the moment to get involved. Now is the time to seize that opportunity and get in there and be active because th these kinds of disruptions don't happen very often. And it's just like a, when a door opens, you know, a crack opens, you run when you see it, you get in there and push it open. Um, and that's why I say to every Canadian, now is the time for every Canadian to get involved because they, they weren't going to do it in the beginning the way people like me did. It was too risky. And it, we, mm -hmm. they can't wait 10 years because it's, it might be too late then. We need as many people involved over the next couple of years as possible. Right. And I think Chris Guy's right as far as, you know, getting jabs, lockdowns, masks, everything. Just say no. If enough people say no and reject what they're trying to do, what can they do? But everybody's got to do it, or at least a majority of people. Yeah, and I think there must be some critical mass who are saying no now. I can't tell you, firstly, because I'm not in Canada, but I think that a lot more, because I get these messages every day, I get three or four messages like this. I've, I feel 
more able to say no. I feel more confident now that it's sort of catching on. And we're even getting a little bit of um, help from the press now, you know, put, pointing out that the Arrive Can app is breaking privacy and is being investigated. So that gives Canadians a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. But the other the other great thing that people can do when you asked me and I said, raise money and understand governance is set up. And this sounds so cheesy, but it always works. <laughs> is set up a small little group in your community, like a book club. Just get five or five is enough, right? Make it easy and small. Mm-hmm. Just get five people together once a week and start talking about the stuff and talking about what you could do as a small group uh, and keep doing it week after week after week. And that's how huge change happens. As you know, it happens because small groups do a, a lot of things consistently and that's how we would get back our freedoms one little community at a time right right i wanted to ask you too in the uk how is it are, are, are people saying no well i live up in the north where like i said people hating the government is you know part of life mm-hmm. and so they're not going to do anything the government tells them to do um and they're historically disenfranchised because it is more a more poor part of the country okay they're they're just waiting for the government to do something that's going to wreck their lives right but i can't say about london i would only imagine it's a bit more compliant like vancouver mm-hmm. um but the brits have they have something really important that we never maybe we never had or we had it in small doses in the 60s and 70s they have a civility amongst themselves I've had mm-hmm. so many conversations with people. I've told them my story and about the masking and the arrest, and they truly are shocked. And the average British person will say, no, it has to be choice. No, that's not right. There has to be choice. And I don't think a Canadian would say that. I think a lot of Canadians might say, well, you know, if it's good for all of us, then you should do it. And, that, you know, it's the government says it, follow the rules. The The Brits are able to have very difficult conversations with each other without being rude. Nice. Mm. Yeah, and it's lovely. And it's it's young people, it's middle-aged people, it's older people. They have a, I don't know whether, it's not just about being educated. There's sort of an intellectual demand over here. Uh, you're, I even see it with the young kids on the street. They challenge each other. They're provocative with each other. Intellectual discussion is expected. Hmm. And if you don't rise to that, then you're kind of mocked. And so it it works in the favor of justice uh, advocacy. Because, yes, yes. Yeah, intellectual thought and being a champion or coming up with a good idea is very revered here. When I don't, I, I don't remember seeing that in that same way in Canada or the U.S. Really, I, North Americans take heed. <laughs> you know, be open, be open to other ideas, be open to to taking something in that you wouldn't have even thought of yourself, you know, challenge. It's, we want debate, you know, this whole censorship thing is just, it's just cutting off debate. It's cutting off a very idea. Of course, that's the whole idea, right? But, um, you know, we have to, I mean, to me, I think things could start changing a lot faster if we could stop all of the censorship and let people speak their mind. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that Britain did was they left the European Union and they were in that for 50 years. And that was a huge, huge sea change, right? I think we're going back to a more nation, sovereign nation, nation to nation, respectful um, society, uh, world, you mm-hmm. know, the way we were before maybe. And 
a lot of people don't understand that necessarily how long Britain was in the EU and they did it for very good reasons that hopefully will work out well for them, right? To, mm-hmm. to rebuild <clears throat> uh, British uh, Britain as a strong nation state again that manufactures and, and raises children and innovates. They're going back to, you know, a, a Britain or English. Well, I said Britain, all four countries, you know, made, made in England, made in Britain is big here now. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that revival again, sort of a populist revival to honor its own culture again. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Canada would... We're ready for that. We are very Canadian in some ways, but we have so many more challenges because our country is so big and we have so few people right, over right. that land base, as yeah. you know. Because I think the I think the U.S. is is moving in that direction. You know, made in the USA is 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 important to people. Yeah, and hopefully, yeah. And then there's Canada, this vulnerable. This huge vulnerable nation with all of this, you know, minerals underneath the ground, right? That's mm-hmm. really, they call that the resource curse, if you haven't heard it. That's no. really one of our main, other main problems is, yeah, we it's like like oil or diamonds. They use that term in Africa a lot, the, the resource curse. You're cursed as a nation because you have all these resources. So there's so many, you know, groups that will come and target the country to exploit it because of the resources. And some of the best, mm. most free countries that are left alone are the ones that have no they don't have it (laughs) they don't have it nobody wants it yeah right (laughs) yeah so we'll see what it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens when Trudeau is gone because Mm -hmm. we've only known this pandemic under him and if we can get a different leader are they going to just completely do a right turn and abolish everything they he's he put into place and just cancel it all and cancel all those laws and all those orders that he enacted or are they going to keep pushing this along in this sludge i mean god forbid we see that that we get a new leader who keeps doing the same thing yeah i hope that both for canada and the states that yeah a new leader will change it all and yeah get rid of all of these ridiculous mandates and laws or you know whatever has been going on in the last couple of years that's really harmed everyone except for maybe them it's these it's these corporations that that's who we have to stop. They're the ones who are running Canada now, and they're they're acting above the rule of law. They're even they're they're more powerful than our sovereign laws. That's that's a, a problem. That's why I'm going to the ICC and why I'm sending a request to investigate Canada there because the international criminal justice system, in some ways, is above uh, Canada's statute laws, and they may <clears throat> have the ability to stop these Mm. crimes that are being committed against our sort of lesser powers of one sovereign nation state. But all these huge corporations, they break our laws because they can, because we don't have the national power in our statute legal system to stop them. Interesting. No country does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's if you're going to study governance, start with City Hall and then I guess move to international governance. It's to me, it's the most fascinating, but it may be perceived by some as the most complicated. (laughs) Wow. Well, this has been so enlightening, Susan. I really, really appreciate who you are um, for, you know, standing up, inspiring others to have courage, to fight for human rights. You really are exemplary and uh, and thank you so much i've learned a lot and i hope the listeners have learned a lot from our conversation yeah wonderful well it was an honor to be here thank you for your time oh thank you and remember everyone susan's website is health justice tees t-e-e-s dot com you can get the book there she has 
awesome teas too, which uh, you can buy and um, yeah, and help support her work. The podcast website is realjanine.com where you can listen to and download episodes. You can also listen to video slideshows on BitChute and Rumble. Please remember to subscribe while you're there. It'd be very much appreciated. Do you know someone who would find my conversation with Susan Stanfield inspiring and empowering? Please share the love. She's an amazing person. She works hard for all of us. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Until next time, take care and be well. Be well.